This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... PC and PC asymmetry. Clone dolls. Starting in media rests. And the murder of Alexander the Great. Pieces of Eight from our freebooting pals at Atlas Games is a pirate ship combat game played with coins. Minted metal coins that clink in your hand. And that's it. No board, no dice, no meeples, no colored cubes. Just coins made out of metal. To play Pieces of Eight, you hold a stack of pirate coins in your hand. That's your ship. And you hold one coin in your other hand. That's your crow's nest. Coins represent things like cutlasses, mates, barrels of grog, and the captain's monkey. Each coin has a special ability you use to attack your enemies. Your enemies being other scurvy players and their own filthy coins. When coins get blown to kingdom come, they go to the Davy Jones locker of your pants pocket. The last player with a surviving captain coin wins. One of the cool things about Pieces of Eight is that you don't need a table to play. Because of all the coins are either in your hand or in your pocket. So it's great for car trips. Or standing in line. Also a great pub game. Because if you're doing the pub right... All the little pub tables are already busy holding your pub drinks up off the pub ground. The no-table gimmick is clever, but Pieces of Eight is also a great game. For example, it won the Origins Awards Vanguard Award for Innovation in Game Design, and it was a nominee for the crazy prestigious Diana Jones Award. Designed by the worthy yet modest Jeff Tidball, who wrote this ad copy but was too shy to credit himself. How tragically Minnesotan of him. Yes, I guess we'll never know who designed this brilliant, groundbreaking game. But we do know that Atlas Games is running a limited-time clearance of Pieces of Eight coin sets right now. Each set contains enough coins for four players, and the limited-time price includes shipping and handling. Let's recap. Pieces of Eight is a pirate ship combat game played with minted metal coins. You don't need a table, so it's great for long lines, car trips, and pub gaming. It's an award-winning design for expert-certified great gaming. And right now, you can get a four-player Pieces of Eight package at a limited-time drop-everything price. Shipping and handling included. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-po8. That's atlas-games.com slash the letter P, the letter O, and the number 8. Or follow the link in the show notes. That might be best. <laughs> The clatter of dice, the feel of shag carpeting under our feet, and the smell of freshly popped popcorn that was left here to get old weeks ago tell us <laughs> we've entered the gaming hut. For a moment there, I thought the aroma would be an improvement on the Doritos, but no, no it took a savage never turn. An improvement. If, if we've learned anything from entering gaming huts over the last 35 years... It is that only the, the aroma only improves when the Indian food gets there. Anyway, we've entered the gaming hut is my larger point, regardless of um, uh, olfactory uh, factors. So, Robin, what have you prepared for us on the big table in the middle? So, I thought this week we would talk about the idea of whether the player characters under a rule set are symmetrical to the adversaries or the non-player characters, and what the trade-offs are for the game designer in going in one direction or the other. Um, I think, first of all, that there is a powerful desire on among a segment of gamers to have PCs and NPCs 
operate under the same rules and that there are powerful reasons as a game designer to flout that desire. So, Ken, what would you identify, if you even agree with the premise, uh, as the uh, emotional root behind the desire to have symmetrical PCs and NPCs in a role-playing game? Well, I mean, I, I certainly can't quarrel that the premise exists. I mean, there are certainly uh, large groups of players for whom that is a, a ne plus ultra of gaming, that they demand that that happen because, and I think that this comes from a couple of places. First, it comes from the sort of wargaming roots of the hobby, that, you know, when you're playing the French uh, fighting the Germans, that, you know, you, the French may have a plus one to uh, morale and the Germans may have a plus one to fire control. But the, when you roll the dice, you know, the two hit number is going to be by the same set of rules, that they're going to break at the same level of morale, even if the French started with a higher one. They're going to, you know, hit on the same uh, set of results, even if the Germans got a modifier, that the rules are going to be common across the whole war. And I think that that is something that is built into the very genetics of the hobby, that getting away from that is going to be impossible at some level. Right, but that's a player versus player setup usually. It's not a setup where the French are being played by a, a GM or just by the game mechanics. But but the roots go into the origin of the hobby, and so the GM in this scenario is playing the Germans. And for the GM to cheat, even if to cheat in favor of the French, feels like a violation of the fundamental... Uh, core of the hobby and cheat of course means play by rules other than those that are written down at the at the basic and so having a common set of rules for both sides is, is fundamentally ingrained into the the dna of the hobby and so getting out of that is going to be very difficult for a lot of designers and for a lot of players and then another set of players literally value the sort of clear table straightforward tactical aspect of a role-playing game and it's not because they came into the hobby from, from wargaming, or even that they've done any wargaming, it's because one of the things that they like about the game is the sensation that when they are going after some orcs, or they're going after some French, or whatever it is in the game... Or worse, French orcs. Or French orcs. Oh, the, the, the zoot allors indeed. And so they are going to beat them straight up. That there's going to be an honest fight with everyone having the same set of expectations, the same set of underlying rules going in, and it's going to be a straight fight that is not going to yield to any sort of narrative or dramatic or other kind of consideration other than might happen just in the sense of the environment. You know, so, you know, the smoke is clouding you or you've got a magic axe or whatever. That's a legitimate part of it, but letting something other than, you know, the dice at the table tell you how the story goes is not what they're there for. What they're there for is that sense of having accomplished a, a successful fight in the, in, in the sense of a, a, a clean fight. And again, this doesn't necessarily come out of wargaming. This comes out of, you know, certainly everyone who watches sports. You, you watch a soccer game, you watch a baseball game, you watch a hockey game. You expect that both sides are playing to the same set of rules. And so when you take that sporting mentality into gaming, which is not a, a far uh, carry at all, then you have that same set of expectations with your fight with the orcs because you think of your fight with the orcs the way you think of a football game. Um, and another thing that I think attracts people to that idea is a desire to see role-playing rules as modeling a universe. So that if you are having a set of rules that tells you how the world works and is a boiled-down uh, simulation, a sort of thought experiment brought to life, that you, again, want to see the... Uh, everybody in the world being modeled in the same way as a sort of a, and I think that's, I haven't got a fancy term for this one yet, but it's sort of the aesthetics of modeling that is a, a separate 
desire and goal sort of apart from what's happening at the table, but a sort of a fantasy of being able to manage the universe and reality by having a rule set that tells you how it works. The downsides of having symmetry between the player characters and the uh, adversaries, and uh, for example, first of all, you know, the original game, Dungeons and Dragons, has asymmetrical stats between the player characters and the creatures. So it, it's not a new thing by any means to uh, depart from symmetry. But there are a bunch of uh, reasons uh, not to do it. And that's because, as I suggested earlier, that the metaphors that people are using to look at it uh, break down a bit. That, you know, if you're looking at it in terms of a sporting event, uh, traditionally you do not have a game where there are uh, five players on one side of the game and one player on the other side of the game <laughs> I don't trying know. to control. There, there, there have been some uh, some NBA games that are exactly like that. <laughs> right. Well, you, you have one main player and the, the other superfluous players, and that's uh, maybe a little uh, little like a role-playing thing, right, where you have LeBron James as your boss monster and everybody else is a mook, and it's, they're easier to manage, right? If you put all yeah, your stats right. in one player as GM, you can run the, the fight more easily. So yes. there are a lot of things that are interesting to have the player's experience, but are just a drag to have the uh, GM have to keep track of. And that if you want the fight to be fun and entertaining and not take up the entire session, you really want to radically reduce the GM's handling cost. And secondly, the average fight in a, a game session is not really a uh, a football match. It's one of a series of matches so that it's fine if you uh, have an absolutely symmetrical set of adversaries and you only encounter one set of adversaries per level and it's a knockdown, drag out, uh, fight to the death where everybody uses the same rules. But there's, uh, you know, usually the convention in play that you will have a series of fights even over the mm -hmm. course of an evening and uh, you do not generally have a situation where the Maple Leafs have to play the Canadiens and then and a half an hour later they have to play the, the <laughs> Oilers and then you know an, another half hour they have to play the Bruins uh, so that if you think of all of the adversaries that the players have to encounter over the course of an evening as one aggregate threat maybe they all put together piled on top of each other are you know one giant adversary that is equal to the uh, PCs but in any given encounter it would actually be unsatisfying because if you actually have full symmetry between the players and uh, the average group of enemies that they encounter, half the players' characters are going to die yeah. every encounter. And that's not really what any of the people that we're talking about actually want, or rather they have contradictory desires. They want to feel that everything is fair and that it models the universe, but they do not want to have a TPK uh, or half TPK every encounter. Yeah, they want it to model the universe and the universe in which they're better than the other people. It's, you know, there's nothing, inco right. there's nothing inconsistent or incoherent about that. And I think a lot of this, I mean, certainly, obviously, I take your point. I, I write games in which PCs have different roles and behave by different guidelines. 
But I think that a lot of this, uh, you know, when you say that the metaphor breaks down at this point or that point, you, you get into, you know, sort of a thing that uh, other people always say that I agree with, that you can't argue someone out of something they didn't argue themselves into. So I think a lot of this belief in PC-NPC symmetry or, um, and, and again, you make an excellent point that in D&D, monsters are different from NPCs, but PC-NPC sim- symmetry is... Uh, one of those beliefs that no one ever was talked into, and so talking them out of it is is not going to necessarily uh, be productive. I think that well, except for the extraordinary persuasive power of this very podcast. Well, yeah, obviously our podcast. I mean, when I say you, they don't mean me; they mean you. That's what you means. But the and not you, you, you know what I mean. Anyway, the 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 thing that we can do in this hobby is to play them out of it, right? I mean, you can build a experience in a game in which the PCs and NPCs are asymmetrical. Or the, and that that is a element that is is visible and foregrounded in the game, as opposed to being hidden behind your hand the way that it is in most games. And you can say, look at this great gaming experience, and you can play that gaming experience. And if you are a good GM and they are a grown up, then they will either come out of it like they have. If, if you go to a really good um, Afghan restaurant and you eat the best Afghan food there, and you come out and you say, well, I still don't like Afghan food, but at least I get why other people do. That's the response of a grown up to that. Same thing can happen with this kind of gameplay. And so we have an advantage here that I think a lot of people maybe don't have in other sorts of pointless arguments from, from not even from first principles, but from, like I say, sort of, you know, cultural genetics. Right. And asymmetry is not necessarily a, a one-way street either. So the reason this is on my mind is that Feng Shui 1 turns out to have PC and PC symmetry, <laughs> uh, which... Uh, current day Robin thinks is a terrible idea, so I'm fixing it. Actually, you know, if you'd asked me, I would have bet the other way. I would have said that surely Feng Shui was one of those games that pointed us the way out of PC and PC symmetry. Uh, it, it did without <laughs> actually doing it in so many ways, right? <laughs> that uh, the, the game of Feng Shui that people remember playing is the game they were told to play by the GM advice, not necessarily the game that's actually there <laughs> in the rules. And so there are lots of handling reasons, for example, not to do that. And there are lots of benefits to taking the NPCs out and, and giving them their own separate set of rules. One of those is you can make them much uh, simpler to handle. Sometimes that means giving them their own special abilities that only matter to them. So, for example, if you're a player character and you have an ability that will impact your enemy later in a later scene, that means nothing to you. That's not valuable. Most of the time you completely defeat and get rid of your enemies in a Feng Shui uh, encounter that, you know, giving them some sort of curse is nothing you're interested in doing. On the other hand, it's very much entertaining if a ba- if there's a threat that the bad guy will lay a consequence on you that will then reverberate in a later story scene. So if you pull out a separate set of NPC abilities, you can tune those to what the NPCs do best. You can also address those handling issues where you do not want the NPCs mostly worrying about resource management, whether they're spending fortune points in order to activate powers. You just want things that are either on or off, depending on what the players choose to do. So you want things that will change over the course of a fight that will affect the decisions that the players make during a fight, that they want to target this guy before that guy, or they want to avoid triggering this power or that power. But that then leads to a much richer play experience. And in some ways, there are some abilities that you want the NPCs to have that the PCs don't. For example, boss characters, the very toughest of the named characters, will be able to immediately draw new weapons at no time cost. That is 
an ability they have that the player characters don't because the question of, you know, when you reload your gun or when you throw it away and grab a new one is is fun. But at the end of a big fight, you're going to have a bunch of people against the boss and the boss needs a couple of areas in which he has an edge and is a, a tougher combatant. That's not an ability that you want to give to everybody. So you uh, so the new game will be doing much more with the idea of there being certain classes of bad guys to whom certain rules apply. That comes from the MOOC uh, named character distinction that's in Feng Shui 1. But in the new version, I'm going to be doing much more with it and doing it in a much, much simpler way. Yeah, the um, sort of the point at which I sort of saw the sort of the, the door open for that, obviously, goes back to Call of Cthulhu, where the NPCs are explicitly different from the PCs in the fundamental rule that the NPCs, uh, certainly the important NPCs, are going to be the guys who have zero sanity and can therefore cast magic spells without losing sanity. And that fundamental differential between PCs and NPCs is so much at the heart of Call of Cthulhu that I think that for me, my, and again, I'm not going to take credit for, you know, having been, you know, having been enlightened at an early age. It's just that my gaming DNA is different, even though I came to, you know, D&D out of Panzer Blitz and out of War Games. And so I began with the assumption that NPCs have to be special and different, because otherwise no one's ever going to summon Yogg-Sothoth and get the game started. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so when I, I began to play other games that had a more sort of a straightforward assumption that, you know, everyone is being built on the same set of points or everyone has the same set of options open to them, like GURPS or whatever, or Ars Magica, I'd always just cheat and, you know, build the guys. And then I think in, in Champions, there's what they call the villain bo bonus, where if your character doesn't add up, but you've built the villain, you like him, you just say, oh, and he's got 350 points of villain. And so that's good for that. And then so that's sort of a, a sort of a thing that is only true in NPCs, even though Champions would be one of those uh, very much... PCs, NPCs, everything, you know, their their damn forks are all built on the same system. Yes, yeah, so if, if there's ever a game that had the promise of modeling <laughs> the entire universe all according to the same set of rules, it's champions. Yet, as you have just pointed out, you need a giant crate full of wiggle room to make that actually work. Yeah, and so, um, when, but whenever I would go into other other games that theoretically uh, would, would insist on that, as, as the GM, I would just change it. And so with, with Ars Magica, there has to be certain kinds of things the way that magic works, and I would sort of monkey with that, or I would change it, or I would say, well, they, they met a demon. The demon gave them this thing. And so that's, you know, how I would sort of get around it. So I never, and again, as the GM, maybe, you know, the, the, the players out there listening are saying, you're the problem. You're the enemy. That's why we have these rules is to stop you. Um, but I, I think that my experiences have been that any rule set can create a satisfying story as you drive it forward, assuming that the play experience is, is a good and positive one, that you don't use the perceived asymmetry to beat the hell out of the players, and you don't use the theoretical symmetry to make the combats drag out forever or, as you suggest, kill half the players half the time. Right, because the, the ideal fight in a role-playing game session, especially sort of the, the tough fight at the end of, of the adventure or whatever, is the one in which all of the players think their characters almost died, but none of them did. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, a tightrope that the rule set uh, has to walk, and that's a very different concern than ensuring mathematical equality between uh, these two forces. And I think that sounds like I just summarized uh, both does. of our that points. It sounds like a summary. I guess we should move on to the next segment then.
can guess what project touted here on the podcast is now crowdfunding on Indiegogo. I don't have to guess. I can see here in the script that it's my pals at Phoenix. As in Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. When typing it into your search engine of choice, remember that all right-thinking persons and Swedes spell it F-E-N-I-X. Uh, and, of course, you don't mean to make a distinction between those two things, but you can tell that it addresses the right-thinking demographic because among its contributors is elliptonic raconteur Kenneth Height. Hop aboard the Indiegogo campaign for a Best of Phoenix anthology in English. Stretch Goals expand its ambition to multiple volumes. Among its Heitian treasures, Dacian werewolves. Golden vampires. And the frost-caked western once upon a time in the north. Plus, from a roster of other contributors, singing spellcasters, Drowned Oz, and the card game Phoenix Fighters. Plus the cartoon exploits of Burger Barbarian. On Indiegogo until April 3rd, 2014. The rattle of ghostly chains, the chill feeling in our marrow, the scream of uh, distant uh, cats and or goblins suggests that we have once again ventured into the perilous, creaking confines of the horror hut. And uh, this time I thought we would riff on an idea from the news. Uh, horror is uh, gets an interesting new frisson when you uh, meld it with the latest technology, the way that... Uh, the ring did with the videotape back in the day. Uh, well, now we have 3D printing, and there's all sorts of... Uh, any new technology, of course, offers all sorts of uh, terrors and fears, and a lot of the fears around 3D printing are about guns that will be easily produced and undetectable to metal detectors and so forth. But I think the use of 3D printing that uh, creeps me out the most... Is, so far. Uh, so far. Uh, well, you know, we do need more episodes, so I guess more creepy things will have to happen in the yes. world. But in this hey, case... Hey, hipsters in your maker spaces, this is your challenge. Yes. <laughs> Creep Robin out with their 3D printer. But somebody has got the brilliant idea to do 3D printed clone dolls that basically create uh, action figures that look like you or like a loved one or perhaps someone you're stalking whose picture you've got from Facebook. Um, <laughs> and so over the space of this segment, I thought we would see uh, how many different directions we can take this in as a uh, premise for uh, a horror scenario or story. And, and Ken, I will be gallant as my blank face plastic visions suggest that I am and uh, give you the first crack at bat for this. So what would be uh, one of the obvious ways to use this premise that we want to uh, dispense off the top of our plastic heads. Okay, I, I think that the beginning and most obvious one is the notion that this is a sort of high-tech homunculus generator, right? That you're taking uh, some quality of the soul or the magic uh, energy or some physical connection between you and the little um, 3D clone guy. And so the action figures... Can, for example, you can begin with the notion that the action figure that everyone is buying, the hot new action figure that everyone has to have for Christmas, is actually the homunculus of a magician who has built this so that now he's got tiny soldiers in every house in the Western world. And he can do anything, go anywhere, see everywhere, do everything, and use his homunculi to, you know, I don't know, drain people's blood or or gather up their, their magical energy from their sleeping babies. I don't know, whatever evil things magicians would do if they had a tiny version of themselves in 10, 15, 20, 70 million houses. They would I think menace Karen Black, they would menace Karen. They would menace the heck out of Karen Black. I think that goes without question. 
I, I think that you can you begin with that. You can also have the deal where you've got the little doll and the bad guy makes it of you, and then the bad guy can either just use it as a voodoo doll, which is fairly boring and un, unnatural, or the bad guy can turn the doll into the bad guy's servant and then either implicate you in the bad guy's activities, because when he uses the little doll to kill people, it's like your fingerprints are left on the scene, or by, you know, hanging out with a little doll and bringing it into the land of evil, he's also opening you up to the temptation of, of doing evil. So after he's gone and committed a series of, 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 of slashings with your little doll, you are then feeling this uncontrollable or barely controllable, which is more scary, urge to start slashing people up there at the food court or, or whatever it is, that, the, that there is some connection that is imprinting, that the, literally the imprinting that has happened on, on the plastic is imprinting itself in reverse back on you. Another version of this that writes itself, of course, is the one that uses the uh, voodoo doll mythology. And uh, this is one in which you perhaps even decide that you want a, a doll of yourself. I don't know. Uh, we would have to, first of all, justify why people <laughs> actually want to do that. But let's say that they do. Also, I suspect that even, even the most trusting and kind-hearted players will cavil when the GM says, having come back from the crazy 3D makerspace where you've made tiny dolls of yourself. <laughs> yeah, so this, these are uh, uh, GMCs, uh, you know, supporting characters whose uh, deaths you're investigating as uh, uh, members of the Ordo Veritatis or uh, your group of Trail of Cthulhu investigators or, or what have you. But if you uh, decide to create a, a doll of yourself, and you live with this uh, this doll. Maybe you uh, here's here's an idea of why people might do this. It's it's part of a it's part of a therapy program where you're supposed to uh, for people who are uh, have a shaky self image. There's this uh, dodgy Cronenberg style uh, therapist who has this practice where you are supposed to engage with this smaller version of yourself. It's treatment for narcissists. Or right? or you can say, hey, you you're playing a ninja. That means you're Japanese. That means you have no problem making a tiny doll of yourself. Don't tell me your character wouldn't do that. Yes, it's, it's a weird-ass <laughs> thing to do. There's no justification required. So uh, uh, this happens, and uh, obviously the creepy Cronenberg-style uh, therapist is going to be uh, one of the first people the investigators go to and is therefore a red herring. This is actually just a crazy therapy and nothing supernatural about it. But meanwhile, people who are engaged in this therapy, this attempt to uh, rectify their either oversized or undersized uh, sense of self begin to interact with the dolls and they uh, psychically imprint with them. And this, of course, makes them uh, magically active. So if you want to break into somebody's house who you know they have these dolls, you can then uh, harm them and exercise control over them. And how the mystery works up, of course, is, is uh, up to you. We don't want to uh, have your players who also, of course, listen to this podcast know exactly what's going on. But it could be, again, the, a magician is trying to harm one person uh, out of this uh, large group of people and uh, who've had this therapy and they, you know, kill a bunch of other people as decoys to throw you off the trail, but they're really after one particular person. So that could be, uh, you know, we could also envision some uh, weirdo uh, sort of yellow sign madness infecting an entire society where the government starts telling you that everybody has to have a miniature version of themselves in order to uh, <laughs> fully understand their relationship to the state and in which the state can then come in and confiscate uh, your voodoo doll if you're misbehaving and that they just they send your doll to Guantanamo and torture it if you don't uh, behave and do what you want. And that way you're not uh, taken off the 
the streets and uh, your value as an economic commodity is is uh, removed. Uh, you still have to work away and stay at your desk and do your job. But uh, if you uh, flout the uh, supernatural tyranny, uh, you know they're going to start twisting the head of your doll pretty quick. Yes, we, we, we know you have a doll of yourself, do you not? Yes. <laughs> it's, it, it beats you have family in the old country, certainly, as the, as the weird threat. That puts a whole new spin on that Tim Conway uh, puppet sketch. That's right. I think that the whole, um, uh, the whole possibility, though, when you started talking about the king in yellow, I think that one of the things that you can use the dolls for, not so much as video, voodoo dolls, although you want to, you know, emphasize the possibility of a connection because it's always good, is just as the, you know, literally that, you know, you're, you're in the uncanny valley of the dolls here, people, that you've got, let's say that there, there's a culture or there's a fad or there's a movement or there's a thing. I mean, you know for a fact, right, that if Beyonce, uh, as we recall, is, is the queen of the Illuminati from a previous episode, if Beyonce went on TV and said, oh, I got this awesome little doll of myself made, there'd be millions of people going to get weird little dolls of themselves made because Beyonce did it and because Beyonce is magic and wonderful. And, and, so, and because it has an iTunes download. Right. And then, you know, obviously Beyonce being Beyonce, she'd be selling, you know, Beyonce dolls at, you know, a significant markup. But the point is that, you know, all it takes is one sort of celebrity or culture leader or someone who's like making it a thing and then people having little tiny dolls of themselves is normal to the people in the society, but seems crazy to players. And that is exactly where you want that sort of Hasturian uh, freak uh, sensibility, that uncanniness to come into the game. Because what you want is for everyone else in the world to say, yeah, my tiny doll, what, what, are, you, what are you looking at? And only the players know that dolls are always creepy, horrible. Don't let that happen. <laughs> I mean, if, if you went into a house now in the real world and you went in and it was the house of, say, a normal person that you knew from, you know, whatever, and they have one wall that's all dolls, even if it's all, you know, Captain America action figures or something, it is, you know, something you are going to note down to yourself about their their psychology. But if they got a wall of dolls, that's that that's like carte blanche to make anything true about them in your head. And certainly in a in a movie, that's going to be you know all right. They're the serial killer, they're the that, mother of the serial the killer. They're something awful. But um, uh, the wall of dolls, get an individual doll, nine or ten dolls. That's nothing. So it's it's sort of like a cat's. There's there's, there's like a yes. cat owner, cat lady uh, barrier for action figure ownership. Exactly the doll owner, doll lady barrier. Like I say, cats are like Nazi memorabilia. You, you know, more than two, and people will talk. But the notion <laughs> where you can use these dolls as signifiers of horror, and also maybe as low side that right they they'll open their little creepy doll mouths and talk to you, or you wake up and you just see that the doll has moved and you don't know why, it's looking at you with its little doll eyes, I think that's, just use that as a frisson, and then the bigger thing may be demons, or it may be Haster, or it may be whatever, but the dolls act as a signifier for it, just the same way that the Howling Wolves do of vampires in Dracula. Another thing that you can do with dolls is take the notion of go onto someone's Facebook page and make dolls of other people. You can go and take a leaf from the I don't want to say underappreciated because I think it is pretty appreciated, but I think it may be not appreciated by enough people. Uh, Puppet Master film series, which was a direct-to-video back in the uh, palmy days of the of the late 80s, early 90s. And it was about a, a guy who made magical puppets, and all of his magical puppets each had like a little superpower. So there was like a, a Genghis Khan puppet, and there was a, a, a dog puppet, and I don't know what all kind of puppets. a drill head, I think. A drill head, and there was a, a magic Indian, and there was all kinds of other stuff. And they all had little doll powers. And 
the director, you know, I forget his name, uh, David Schmuller, I think Charles Band is kind of the, the Val Luton of, of this uh, movie, really. He's sort of the guy who drives it. He's the producer. Is that it's it gives you that sort of great, you know, multiple kinds of bad guys running around. You don't know exactly what's going on at any minute. There's always that frisson of, of the unusual. You don't know. they've all, Some of them have got their own little agendas. There's psychic powers because there's magic dolls around. So it, it has a nice little uh, hermetic, in the sense of self-contained horror universe. And I think you can build that same sort of thing with tiny dolls. So you're like, I have a tiny doll of, you know, Beyonce, and it's not because of anything, you know, normally weird. It's because I need to channel, you know, uh, I need a tiny doll that will be able to, to sort of sing and dance and distract people. And I need, and I got a tiny doll built of the world's greatest assassin. And I've, I've, you know, downloaded everything from his, um, uh, all the news articles about him. And I've, I've built the tiny doll of him and he goes out and he kills people. And you can have a bunch of tiny dolls that act with the sort of superpower. And you can either have a, a demonically enhanced version of the power, or you can just say that, that, that because I've taken their image, I'm, I'm drawing in their powerful magic. It's the same as you would have, in a, a voodoo um, uh, ofrenda, where you've got an image of of the god, and so you can access the power of that god because you've got the image. So you've got your 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 instead of having a statue of Dambala Wedo, you'd have a tiny doll of the world's greatest escape artist, and so he can draw on escapeness and either tell you turn left, turn right, or you send him out to sneak into a, vault, a bank vault or something. One thing that we've been assuming in this whole discussion is that the dolls are made of plastic. What if they're bioengineered, they're uh, made from your DNA? And again, the question arises, why the heck would you do this? Well, the reason <laughs> you would do this <laughs> is that uh, there's a, a new uh, hedge against Alzheimer's and dementia, and that if you uh, create this little uh, DNA replica of yourself, the uh, Cronenberg-y uh, the corporation, if you leave it in the right space uh, in your room, uh, you know, has to be a certain distance from your head while you sleep, it then backs up all of your memories and experiences. And that if, you know, God forbid something should happen to you uh, uh, later in life that uh, affects your mind, a blow to the head or any of those aforementioned conditions, they can then extract all of your uh, memories and, uh, and put them back in and heal those conditions. Or you could even, uh, you know, draw on them for, uh, they could be an external memory backup because, uh, you know, in real life, uh, the brain doesn't store all of your experiences because that would drive you insane. But let's say you really need to remember something. Well, then you can just sort of access it through the doll. And there's nothing that could go wrong with that if, say, for example, uh, someone got a hold of your doll with all of your memories in it. And that, by the way, is how you get the players to do it, is you say, well... In this uh, sort of near-future, weird, creepy cyberpunk universe, if you want to be healed more, you know, f at f a fast rate with cloned body parts, you need to have a starter clone hanging around somewhere. And it's just, you know, that's just how the healing works. And if you, if some, you know, cyber ninja cuts off your head, if you want to come back as your same character, you kind of need to back up your head. So that's why you got a little tiny clone doll, and that's just how healing works. And if you sell that right, you sort of underplay it at the intro of the game. Oh, and healing works because there's a, a pre-established um, uh, 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 micro-scale clone of yourself that blah, blah, blah. You just sort of leave that out there and people are like, oh yeah, okay, I want I want to have one of those so that I can 
be healed instantaneously. And you start the you know first couple of sessions, and it's like, oh, well, thank God you had that tiny clone, because now your arm's back. Sessions and, three, you explain that it has to wear a t-shirt, much like the, your favorite t-shirt. And uh, session five, you just have to stop off and do some uh, shopping for your doll. <laughs> That's, I, 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 I'm actually kind of now enjoying this sort of Tamagotchi as horror <laughs> aspect that you've introduced into my already creepy as hell cyberpunk doll universe. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, actually, that's a whole different thing. I mean, again, that's maybe better for an NPC, someone who becomes like so obsessed with the transference between themselves and their doll that they've lost connection of where the boundary is. And every time you see them, like they're a little smaller and it's like, okay, I'm not sure. And then at one point you go and you see them and they're playing with their doll and they're like, oh no, that was just a spell. I'm fine now. And the little doll's like, no, 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 and put in a box. Kind of uh, the doll could be your backup against uh, the PTSD from the uh, evil entities that you're encountering. So if you want to uh, not go insane, yeah. you have to store your memory of having encountered, uh, you know, the, uh, the the Mego or, or whatever it is. And then, uh, but then later you might need to reaccess the memory of the Mego and then you port it temporarily back in. And uh, so it, it becomes... Uh, uh, not so much your uh, sin eater as your insanity eater. And again, anyone out there who's running something like transhuman space, you already have the capacity to do that because you know the players have already made sure to provide zoxes of their own mind, you know, mental downloads against just such an eventuality. You can build creepy dolls without their permission now because all it takes is someone to hack in to the zox bank and the creepy bioroid bank and bang, tiny dolls or full-size dolls or however you want to do it. So you can have the notion that the bad guys because they have enough data on you, right? The government right now has got, you know, your browser history. It's got your, you know, so it has a, at least a first cut of what your intellect is like. It's got your fingerprints. It's got your blood type. Once your medical records are all online or, or all dumped into the federal health bank, you know, you, it's got your whole DNA. All it takes is one lab somewhere in New Mexico, and they can build the clone of you in tiny doll or normal size form pretty much straight out. I mean... For, for it, all we know, that vast... NSA complex uh, in Utah is just shelf after shelf of dolls of everybody. And they're just waiting. They're just monitoring everybody to wait until they look sort of suspicious and terroristy to take them off the shelf. And that's right. really why they're gathering all of this metadata is to keep all the dolls tuned. I, I, I kind of like the idea that they built it in Utah so they have access to that big Mormon repository of everyone's name going back to Adam. And so, that you know, they're, they're not just building the dolls of everyone who's in America now, they're building the dolls back through the generations. And so they're going to like, we can, you know, pretty much once we've got it figured out, we can wake up Abraham Lincoln and get him to help us out or whatever. I, I, the, the notion that you, a creepy repository in Utah, I think that there's a lot of creepy repositories in Utah. But yeah, the notion that, you know, the, the NSA is, is already the, the, the people with the room full of dolls and we're just waiting to find out about it. That's a good one. All right. And you'd have to uh, go in and, uh, you know, you can have a heist uh, scenario where you want to go in and uh, you can't just steal your doll. They'll notice it's missing, but you can put in a ringer mm -hmm. to uh, provide disinformation to the NSA. If you uh, Oh, that's even better. You build your own doll again. on. I love when you make the players do things because they think it's going to give them an edge. No, we're <laughs> going to build a version of our doll that's subtly wrong so that when we replace the government version of our doll, it can, you know, and you, if you, you know, let them come up with the idea, they go do it. And then they're like, 
Why did we build a version of ourselves that was subtly wrong? What what part of that sounded good at the time? <laughs> you know, can I, I get the sense that we could go on all day, but we don't have all day. We so don't have all day. We'll let our tiny on. dolls do it. Yes, exactly. So, uh, yeah, so our, our new spinoff podcast, Ken and Robin's Tiny Dolls Talk About Stuff, drops next week. That's right. It, but it's going to be in a higher register. So just uh, adjust your, your, your headsets accordingly. On Ask Ken and Robin, some of the things we talk about today are... So basically, I think that what it really does is it establishes a sense of history um, immediately and on, you know, I don't say on the cheap, but certainly at a emotional point of investment that is up to you to decide as opposed to waiting for the players to find the interesting thing. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. <laughs> Philippe Marcel asks Ken and Robin, could you talk about starting in media res in a session or campaign? Robin. Oh, you sly fox, you. This is <laughs> drive Rob Borges, our uh, trusted audio editor, crazy. <laughs> yeah, so uh, starting in the middle of something, uh, Ken, uh, have you used this uh, to good effect? He says, throwing it right back at <laughs> Well played, I guess. I don't think I've started a campaign in media rest, and I think I may have mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but I've had really good effect with a flash-forward that lets the player characters fill in what happened in the interim. I mean, I, obviously, every campaign starts in media res in that you start with a campaign history that's going on. Often the characters already know each other, so you don't have a tiresome, well, I'm in a tavern, you're in a tavern, I guess we have enough in common to go, you know, kill things together. But you you have, uh, in terms of an ongoing, you know, as you wake up in the pit type moment, I, I don't think that I've, to my knowledge, started something uh, directly like that. But I have done a thing where... Uh, we agreed that we needed to advance the game calendar, and so we just said, all right, do your last things for Christmas of the game year, which was 1759 or whatever, and the next time we start, it's going to be a week before Midsummer, so we can get to Midsummer's Night's Dream before we all die of old age. And so we jumped the campaign ahead, and then the players immediately... They they picked it up and they ran with it because they're great. And so they were talking about, oh, well, this is going to be better than that Candlemas disaster, and they are filling in the backstory as it goes. And I think that is one of the great advantages of starting in, in media rest is because it lets the players feel, assuming that you're willing to let them, which you should be, lets the players feel like they're co-creating their own experiences and that they get to have the good parts of, of having gamed for eight months or a year in this setting without having to sit down and roll dice for every single kobold. Uh, first of all, about skipping the prologue, I should go back and de-prologue a bit. I realized I was a little naughty there, and uh, my desire to have our audio engineer, Rob, be the illegitimate heir to uh, Jose Luis Borges uh, came out again, but his name is actually pronounced Rob Borges, so I apologize for that, Rob. Starting in media res is basically an extension of the basic writing principle of start the scene as far into the scene as you possibly can. So, for example, if you go back to uh, sort of pulpy movies from the 30s and 40s, they very often start 
with a scene where a guy goes to another guy's office and the guy behind the desk tells him what his assignment is. You don't see that nearly so much anymore in movies or TV episodes. They tend to start as far into the story as they possibly can and still make sense because that bit at the beginning is the boring bit. The trick here is that the moment at which the players decide whether or not to accept the assignment, whether to accept the premise of the thing that you've prepared for that evening, is to some extent, a possibly illusionary extent, an opportunity for them to exercise control. But you don't actually want them to exercise control in that if you've uh, prepared a big adventure, because then if they, you know, if you start off with, well, you're getting ready to go on the plane to Antarctica, and then they all just decide, well, I'm not getting onto a plane to Antarctica. Well, first of all, if you have a set of rules that's worth its salt, it will give them a reason to get on the plane to Antarctica, but let's say you're stuck. Then it's just sort of not only a boring beginning, but sort of a null beginning that prevents you from doing what you want to do. And you can certainly say, well, okay, um, what do you want me to have you do that's not getting on a plane? And if they don't have an answer that's like better than getting on a plane, you've sort of hit an yeah. impasse. So the solution is to start with, well, you're all on a plane to Antarctica. And if the players then uh, start to resist and, and kick up, perhaps because they suspect that there's something in Antarctica that will confront uh, <laughs> characters of the sorts of people they're supposed to be playing given the genre, you can then turn it around and use a technique that I call auto-deprotagonization. I'll bet you don't call it that twice. I'm certainly not going to call it that twice. I'm lucky <laughs> I called it that once. This is a recently developed term in the corpus of role-playing analysis where people are, are very concerned as players for deprotagonization, and, and you want to avoid situations. For example, the classic example of deprotagonization is where they are just spectators in a scene where the GM's favorite character is doing the interesting thing. But sometimes you actually need to start an adventure with you see this thing happen and then you act on it. And so one way to turn that around to make it better is to rather than just saying, well, you're stuck in this situation, suck it while I set up the story and get it rolling. You say, you're stuck in this situation where you have to watch this thing happen. Why is that? So you're turning it around and you're giving them an opportunity to be collaborative to suggest why it is they're on the plane to Antarctica or why they've beamed down to the inhospitable planet. And so rather than forcing a buy-in on them, you're inviting them to buy in. And that gives them the opportunity as players, if not as characters, to exercise the control at the beginning that they want to have without preventing you from engaging with the premise of the thing that you've uh, prepared. The sort of the Antarctica gambit that you talk about is... I think what players like having is a ritual moment where they could say no, even if they know they're not going to say no. So it's like in the wedding when you say, if anyone can show reason why these two should not be joined, no one expects anyone to say, oh, yeah, one of them is actually a tiny doll built in a Japanese laboratory. And you're like, well, okay, that would be a reason. I guess it's off. That, that would be a reason. That would be a reason, in fairness. But, oh, well, maybe it wouldn't. I don't know. I don't judge. I love everybody. But the thing is that... Players like having agreed to go to Antarctica, even if you say, you, you saw me buy the Antarctica book, you're playing Antarctic explorers, you hate monsters. It was your idea it to play It was your Antarctic idea explorers. to play the Antarctic book, but they will still say, 
Well, my character didn't say that he was going to Antarctica. So there's a sense, I think, of, a, of a, among some players, especially players who played for years and years and years and have developed sort of their own rituals of how to get themselves into the dungeon, or whatever the dungeon is, that there, it has, there, you're, you're ignoring a part of the ritual. It's like if you just go down to the courthouse and the guy stamps a form and says, you're married, you're like, well, all right, I'm still legally married. I'm still in Antarctica, but there was supposed to be a cake and, and stuff. And so there's there's a sense of ritual that I think players object to, and I think that that's why if I were going to start the Antarctica game, I might just begin with them in Antarctica. I might say, all of your characters, when we're making up characters, tell me why they are in Antarctica, you know, on July 4th, you know, 1978, or whatever the date is that the campaign starts, and then you can start in Medias Rest there, as opposed to, you know, starting with... You're getting on the plane, and then there's a thing. That, I mean, I'm, again, I'd move it even farther forward to get the buy-in at character creation and, and make it expl- and make that the ritual moment. Another thing, I mean, you can't necessarily do that with an adventure in a larger campaign, but you can't easily start an adventure in Medias Rest unless you, like I said at the at the top of the segment or top middle of the segment, that everyone sort of agrees out of game. We need to just do this so that the internal game calendar makes sense, or so that we're not all bored stupid by your terrible, terrible mid-game or whatever it is, and we, we just have agreed that we're going to move it along. But if you've got that kind of agreement, it's fairly easy to say all the players are sitting there like, well, I guess we have to go to Antarctica to fight this thing. You can easily start then the next session with you getting on the plane to Antarctica because you have something awesome that's going to happen on the plane, and the players have allowed themselves to be montaged past the moment at which you know they actually buy the ticket or whatever. Right. Another thing to do is to give them all easy or even automatic wins as an immediate positive feedback for uh, giving you permission to engage with the in-medias res. So if you start with, you're in a plane over at Antarctica, it's going down. What's the first awesome thing you do to protect yourselves and the rest of the passengers? And so that takes them away from the, you're in a plane and it's going down, and that moment of resistance to giving them an opportunity to demonstrate that their characters are cool and competent. Because I think also that people don't want to feel hosed by being asked to engage with a premise. So that if you, you know, you weren't stupid to get on that that airplane, you might even go start off with, you're on a plane over Antarctica, as you knew would happen, it is going down. Mm-hmm. And so that has the same as functional... As you predicted at the time. <laughs> yes. It has the same functional result of cutting in as far into the action as you possibly can and starting with an action scene, but... They're not being chumped. They are, in fact, uh, well, yes, of course, we anticipated this, and therefore we have our X, Y, and Z, and they then start to uh, tackle the problem, because I, I think that that's also a big part of resistance to in-medias res beginnings, is that people fear being made out to be mopes. So you want to find empowering ways to get them as deep into the story as you can. I, I did a, a GURPS cliffhangers game that was the playtest for Gernsback in GURPS Alternate Earth 1, uh, in which I deliberately structured it like a cliffhanger serial so that every session ended with them in a death trap. And so we began every session, you know, in a sense, in medias rest, because we began it before the last act of the previous story. And so, but they'd had all week to think of how to get out of the death trap. And did they blatantly cheat the way the Republic serials did? No, we no, we never once had a having escaped from the pit. You, we we. I, 
trust me, with my players, letting them have a week to solve the death trap meant I never had to solve the death trap. <laughs> I, I could literally have, have had, well, I guess you're being sucked into the black hole, and then a week later, one of them would have said, well... Uh, we're being sucked in the black hole. Fortunately, I have with me my thing, and it's like, oh yeah, you you did have that thing. Well, there you go. Um, good good planning, having a teleporter in your shoe or whatever the thing was. Uh, the the just I I was literally dropped them off the Empire State Building and they got out of it. So it's it's was it was very liberating to me as a GM. And if and and I I think that this sort of goes to a larger thing I are, I always say is that trusting the players to play along and trusting the GM, like you say, not to chump you are the two halves that make In Media's Rest really, really work when it works in a session or in a campaign. And in a session, if you've been running the same game for four years or however long, long enough to, to establish trust, you can have the opener where you're all chained naked to the wall of the prison because they know that it's not just the way you did, the, what you did to get all their Vorpal swords taken away. As you suspected, you woke up... <laughs> Chained to the wall, as you planned to have yes. happen. As as the hangover fades, tell me why you were chained to the wall of this prison. But they know that they're not being chumped. They know because you've got a really great prison escape story that you want to start, and it wants to be about just how badass they are without all their toys, and that you're not going to have, you know, them fighting a fully armored anti-paladin in the first fight, that they're going to fight a bunch of guards and kobolds and rats and things to get their way up out of the prison, and that that will be a fun game. And... What, you know, with trust, anything is possible in role-playing, and I think the advantages of In Media's Rest is that if the players trust the GM to start the game for, like, you, the reasons you say, because you're starting at the exciting part, and the player and the GM then trust the players to add backstory to the campaign in such wise that it writ enriches the game and doesn't make the player bulletproof, then you have the best possible mix. So the advantage of that in, in Media's Rest is that you get the exposition taken care of um, as dramatically as you get the story introduced because it, they're only remembering the high points, right? They don't remember, well, I remember that, you know, series of endless fights against kobolds. No, they're like, oh, I killed um, uh, the, 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 the ice witch and that's why my hand uh, is impervious to, to heat, right? Or whatever it is, right? And so you can then build that ice switch into the backstory, you can build that hand into the backstory, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff that can happen as a result of, you know, again, trusting the players to co-create with you. Yeah, now I'm thinking uh, my session starting in a couple of days will start off with the players in a plane over Afghanistan. Now I just have to work out how they already know that it's going to go down. Oh, wait, it's Feng Shui. They it's already Feng Shui. Know. Yeah, they already know. Yeah. Well, again, I mean, with some games, the, the, the ritual is reading the cover. I mean, in Call of Cthulhu, you're very, very blessed because the players, by choosing to play Call of Cthulhu, have already allowed you to do anything you want to them as their, to their characters because they know that's what's going to happen. Yeah, and in fact, the, the difference between chumping them and not in games like that is just say, you're in the plane, and of course it's going down. Yeah, yes. And problem solved. Two words. There we go. We, t we talked too long in this segment. We just sort of said those two words at the top. Well, once we've, once we've announced that we're talking too long in a segment, perhaps it is time to end as we began right in the middle of things. The clacking of chronotons and the wearing of time gears informs us that once more, we are basking in the presence of Ken's time machine, the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to send Ken back into history to bend 
fold, spindle, sometimes even mutilate it. And often the, the premise is that Time Incorporated asks Ken how he's going to possibly do something and then decides whether they really want to go ahead with it. But this is a, now it can be revealed case file I was going through. Uh, and uh, I've discovered, Ken, that you were there uh, for the death of Alexander the Great. Uh, periodically, scholars will announce a new suspect in the murder of Alexander the Great, even though history tells us that he died of a, a fever. But it turns out that uh, not only was he murdered, but you helped cover it up. So uh, later I'm going to ask you uh, why and how you did that. But uh, for Martians listening, can you put Alexander the Great in his historical context before you wrench that context around? Well, again, for the Martians, Alexander the Great is absolutely, and I think pretty much without question, the greatest military mind uh, human history has ever produced uh, in terms of combined arms, in ter terms of the, the variety of, of foes that he fought, the different kinds of battlefields, every level of campaign down from the tactical all the way up to the grand strategic. Alexander the Great stands really head and shoulders above everybody. He's just a magnificent figure in the very specialized art of killing a lot of strangers to take their belongings, which as a gamer, obviously, we have a certain a simpatico. Also, he was a big drinker, so you got to like that about a guy. He conquered uh, the Persian Empire, mostly uh, as a way of uh, glorifying himself, one suspects, but also out of revenge for the Persians trying to conquer the Greeks, and out of a way to aggrandize Macedon and thus unify Greece under the only power that could actually bring Greece to its full potential. So there's a lot of stuff going on in Alexander the Great, but mostly we call him the Great because he and 33,000 of his closest personal friends knocked down the, the, the largest, most powerful and influential empire the world had ever seen and um, uh, did it all in less than a decade. So, uh, and, and in which century was this decade? This is the 4th century BC. Alexander the Great dies on June 11th, uh, 323 BC, according to people who know more about Greek calendars than I do. And so 323 BC, he dies. He's about 33 years old. He was born in 356 in Macedon, which is just north of, of Greece proper. The Greeks would emphasize that it is just north of Greece proper, and the Macedonians would insist that it was part of Greece, which is a hilarious reversal of the way things are now. And that is pretty much all down to Alexander the Great having made Macedon so awesome that now everyone wants to claim it was always part of their polity. But he, he dies in, in 323 BC. He has just finished conquering Persia. He'd gone into India and had begun conquering India. And uh, at the uh, Bayas River, which is the farthest branch of the Indus, the farthest east branch of the Indus, his army, having cottoned onto the fact that they were in no way running out of India, decided they were done, that they'd conquered Persia. They'd all become obscenely wealthy. I mean, the amount of personal wealth of his individual soldiers, it was like they'd bought into a dot-com from the jump, right? They were like Google founding stockholders at this point. They were sick of conquering India. They were the best soldiers in the world. No one in the world could defeat them. And they, they knew that there was no credible military threat. They suspected they were just feeding Alexander's ambitions. And so they're like, no, we're not going any farther. Alexander goes into his tent. He sulks for three days like Achilles. He expects the soldiers to come crawling back and saying, we're sorry, we we're mean to you, Alexander. Uh, they did not. He comes out and says, you, my soldiers, are the only people who can beat Alexander, turns them around and marches back to Persia. There is a great, great biography of Alexander the Great, which is by a guy named um, Peter Bosworth, 
it, it, which has the line in it, it is at this point that Alexander was probably the closest to ordering his army slaughtered. <laughs> Bosworth grew up under the Greek colonels who um, uh, were also Greek military men and spent a, a formative period in Greece under the colonels and had a very negative opinion of Greek military men and has written the meanest biography of Alexander the Great that you ever want to read. And certainly when Alexander marched back through Persia, he marched through the Gedrosian Desert, which even then was pretty inhospitable and now is probably impassable by 33,000 guys on foot. The Navy was supposed to land at the shore and, and dig uh, wells for the army to, to drink from because even when he's you know mad at people, he's still got um, uh, logistics going on in his head. But that didn't work out because either there was no wells or the Navy got lost or you, you, ne you never know why it was. But at the end of the march, he's punished his army very significantly for mutinying against him. And he goes to Babylon, and he's in Babylon in, as I mentioned, in June, which is not the best time in the world to be in a malarial swamp, and dies after a massive drinking bout, which was probably... Which, which seems like Ken Height fingerprints to me. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Uh, which was probably, and certainly according to my report, was depressive uh, behavior after the death of his best friend Hephaestion from a fever. Hephaestion was his best friend and lover and had died. You know, one of the few people that Alexander would let say, hey, maybe conquering all of India in one go, not a, not a terribly great idea. And so when Hephaestion died, Alexander made what may or may not have been the tactical error of crucifying all the doctors for not curing Hephaestion. Um, and so when he gets his own fever, they are sort of working with the B team and uh, he, he dies. And their hands are shaking. <laughs> <laughs> their hands are very much shaking. And he dies of, uh, after a um, uh, series of fairly epic drinking bouts in his tent. Uh, the army sort of marching past his uh, body uh, on the bier. At, at one point, as he's dying, there's a rumor that he's dead, and the army is about to burn down Babylon. And so he orders the army to march past him, and he raises his arm as each unit passes him. And it may have been that effort that actually, you know, finally polishes him off instead of staying in the coolth and not uh, being outside. The rumor that he was poisoned goes back to just after his death, about 317 BC, one of his generals, Polypsircon, wrote a book of rumors that implies that Antipater, who was the, his, I think, uncle-in-law or some vague connection, who had been left behind to run Macedon while Alexander was out conquering the world, uh, had ordered him poisoned so that Antipater could still run Macedon. And this is because Polypsircon wanted to run Macedon and he wanted to um, uh, blackguard Antipater. And so there was a... Th that poisoning conspiracy theory goes back almost to the moment of his death. Um, and probably if you we were there at the moment of his death, you would have heard it too. And I certainly did when I was there. Right. So uh, you're speaking as if it is a mere rumor, but we know, in fact... I went to a great deal of trouble to make a cover story happen. I'm not going to blow it on this on, on, on this podcast at this point. Everything I say is hypothetical. Right. Of course. Yes. yes. Uh, this is uh, purely for entertainment purposes. Please, no wagering. But for the uh, hypothetically, we know that it was hypothetically murder. Murder. Uh, so uh, who committed this murder and why did you decide to uh, whitewash it in the annals of history? The person who actually committed it was a, a guy named Cassander, who was one of Alexander's generals and toadies and hangers-on. He was a half-decent general. I mean, you couldn't be around Alexander and not turn into a better general than most people. He had the best general staff, you know, probably, you know, better than Napoleon's. I, I don't know that there's been a... I mean, maybe Ulysses Grant had a better general staff, but I, I think that's where you have to go, or, or Lee. You have to get, you know, down in the 19th century before you get a better general staff. But Cassander is, you know, definitely a B-list in the A-listers, and that 
makes you angry. He's tied in with a sort of a radical Greek uh, Republican uh, Democratic movement in, in Greek that want to sort of rebel against Alexander because that always works well. And so the notion being that basically he acquires some sort of poison and the general uh, consensus such that there is, is that it's hellbore, which is a poison that people knew about and grew all over the place, and you can mix it into wine and people don't taste it. And so that he put hellbore in Alexander's cup and uh, basically got him got him killed. Now, the reason to cover it up is because as a time machine guy, I knew that Cassander's not going to come to a good end anyway, so there's no point in unbalancing the succession struggle at that point. Also, if Alexander dies of a fever, it looks better for his myth. He, he dies... Uh, Phoebus Apollo kills him. He's not killed by the hand of some unworthy scoundrel like the coward Robert Ford or John Wilkes Booth. He's killed by the gods. And that's that's more badass. So, so you were covering up Alexander's murder as a favor to him. Yeah, absolutely. No, Alexander and I were tight. I mean, if, if you could drink and you had crazy ideas that didn't threaten him, you were like Alexander's best friend. When he was coming back through India, he would have Brahmins and, and leading uh, scholars of, of Buddhism and, and all the Indian religions brought to him, and he'd engage in theological disputation with them and ontological disputation. Because remember, this is a guy who basically was homeschooled by Aristotle. So he, he may not have been you know one of the world's great intellects per se, but he was trained by one of the world's great intellects and was you know, one imagines that after 15 years of warfare, you kind of miss that. And so he was always intellectually curious about stuff, wanted to know things, great conversationalist, um, again, would kill you when he got drunk now and again. He didn't remember any of Aristotle's views on comedy, did he? Well, yeah, he and I talked about that all the time. Why? They, they turned out to be a lot like Northrop Fry's. <laughs> he agreed that comedy was when Hephaestian's, uh, when Hephaestian's doctors walk into an open sewer and die. Um, <laughs> Yeah, he and Northrop Fry, you know, they had a lot in common. Anyway, the uh, you know, barring the whole conquering things, but yeah, the the murder by Cassander would have been would have, would have weakened the myth. It would have brought him down. It would have been. I mean, obviously Hercules is murdered, or Heracles is murdered, who was one of Alexander's heroes. He's murdered by Danae, but that's by a woman. And Cassander, you know, whatever else you want to say, not that. But you you have Achilles isn't murdered. He dies in battle against uh, Paris. Paris shoots him like a coward. But it's but it's at least it's a war it's a war death. Alexander would not have wanted to to go out being poisoned. He wanted to go out you know battling the gods. Actually, he wanted to go out you know um, on top of the entire world, but that was not in the cards. And uh, you know it sets a bad precedent. Not that there weren't plenty of later poisonings of rulers in history. Yeah, no, it, it's just it's it's a plus. It, it lets Cassander profit from the crime, right? It's like when you publicize the name of of some guy who, who commits an atrocity, a school shooting or whatever, and now everyone's talking about him. And it's like, gee, do you think that could have been part of his agenda? I don't know. Uh, there was a great uh, Greek story about the temple at Halicarnassus that burned down, and it burned down actually on the day Alexander was born. And the guy, they caught him, and they took him in front of the, 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 the magistrates, and they, said, and they said, why on earth would you burn down the temple at Halicarnassus, you, you, you jackass? And he says, because I wanted my name to live forever. And they said, well, we'll solve that. They dropped him in a well, put rocks on top of it, and never spoke of it again. If uh, only that had happened to the guy who shot John Lennon. If only that had happened. To, well, the, the, the whole series of people. But, you know, again, if, I, if you could have said, oh, John Lennon just died of a fever that he got in Central Park, you know, Mark David Chapman would, you know, be ideally in a well covered in rocks, but we wouldn't know his name. One of us used his name, the other one didn't. Yeah, I know, whatever. <laughs> um, so is there, uh, did you take a part in the succession of uh, nudging it around, or did you just uh, watch what was already foreordained by the 
then extant timeline. Well, I pretty much watched it because the go- I mean the, key, the the thing that you know sort of is the bittersweet quality of this is that I knew that Alexander the Great had to die before he was going to originally, or else Rome doesn't survive. And it is so critical and crucial to the development of Western society that the Republic exist as opposed to the Athenian democracy that Rome really has to make it. And if Alexander the Great had continued his uh, pl- he planned to conquer the south half of Arabia, which would not have taken him very long, then go ask Carthage if they wanted to uh, be his ally or not, and they would have either said yes or no, but either way, Carthage is out the door, and then the next thing is Rome. And Livy, to the contrary, Livy wrote the first alternate history ever, in which he suggested that Rome would have beaten Alexander. That's that's not in the cards, and it's certainly not in the cards in the third century, in the fourth century BC. So Rome has to survive, so Alexander has to die. And in terms of the succession, for Rome to, to survive, you need the succession to fall out as it did, with all the generals splitting up his empire, no single great countervailing empire in the east uh, to, to, to counter their rise. I did want to make sure that Ptolemy got the body, A, because Ptolemy always liked him best, and B, because I needed Ptolemy to get that library built so that I could um, uh, check out Aristotle's book on comedy to prove that I was right and Alexander was wrong. <laughs> well, I think that explains hypothetically uh, why that happened. And uh, we can declare uh, yet another Ken Mission Back in Time explicated and another podcast, therefore, concluded. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Phoenix. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Be a doll and hit the donate button at KennerRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Exploit our reach by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>